Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld and Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. There's no source sheet that went out, but we're going to be referring to a lot of sources, but almost all of them are in the Chumash. So if you have an Eitz Chaim Chumash, please keep it in front of you. And if, you're not, if you don't have an Eitz Chaim Chumash, we won't just call pages. We will give you chapter and verse. Uh, there'll be one or two sources that we're going to look at that you'll just have to listen to. Um, but most everything will be in the Chumash itself. Um, here's how I want to begin this. Some of you know, because I mentioned it with some frequency, that of the of the people that I love to read and listen to. Uh, and that, that changes as I change. Uh, I, go on, I go on kicks of reading sometimes the entire canon by one author, and then I move to the next author uh, in the nonfiction world. Um, right now, I'm definitely in a Malcolm Gladwell uh, fix and enjoying his writing, which I always have, and particularly his podcasts. He has a phenomenal podcast from a couple of years ago that tries to understand the difference between classic modern rock and roll music on the one hand and country music on the other hand. Raise your hand if you're a country music fan. Some of you. I can enjoy it here and there. I don't think I've ever intentionally bought a country music album, but <laughs> I, I, I have no expertise in it. But you know, sometimes a country music song will appeal to me. And what Malcolm Gladwell notes is that so much of country music, when you listen to it, it makes you cry much more frequently, I forgot what study he showed, than listening even to weepy-ish songs from the, um, from the, from the rock genre. Mm-hmm. And he goes into an hour-long investigation as to why. And what he pulls out from this in- investigation is that the difference between rock music that focuses on sad themes and country music that focuses on sad themes is that the former, in general, stays in generalities, broad images, broad themes about sad things, whereas the latter is hyper-specific. You listen to a country music song about illness or a breakup of a relationship or the um, tensions in a friendship, and you get very specific imagery and very specific descriptions of what's happening in most rock music songs uh, over the last uh, you know, 30 or 40, 50 years, the composers of the songs are hovering in general descriptions of those painful parts of life or painful parts of relationship. And what Gladwell pulls out of this is that specificity is the key to unlocking emotions. I remember reading about that in an entire different category elsewhere, which is that as a teacher and as a parent, and I suppose as a supervisor, There is an enormous difference between offering general praise and specific praise. And in fact, it's not only the case that offering specific praise is better, it's also possible that offering generic praise doesn't get experienced by the listener in a positive way. Why? If I say to my child, that is an amazing painting, unconsciously, they might be thinking that their threshold to gain my praise is amazingness. And not everything is amazing. But if I say to my child, look at how yellow that sun is on that page. I see the expressions on all of the faces of the people that you drew in that picture. It's specific. 
it doesn't perpetuate a specific threshold of what is good or what is bad, and it allows them to hear that I'm focusing on details and that I really see what they wrote. I'm not just getting away with, that was great, well done, good job, amazing, right? How often do we say those words and we know they are dripping with nothingness, even though we mean them? But if you can get specific in your description in a song of the particular pain in a family as they're dealing with cancer, you're going to get a tear from someone listening to it. And if you get specific in your praise of a child or an employee or a student, they're going to feel that they were seen and they're going to try to recreate that feeling by being as accomplished the next time around and not just searching for an illusory chimerical perfection, which doesn't actually exist. Step three, if it's the case that specificity in how we see someone makes them really feel acknowledged, then I think it's also possible that seeing someone only in vague generalities might make them feel like they're a stranger, that you really don't know them even if you think that you do. And the reason why I bring all of this in is because Rabbi Schatz and I want to zoom in on some scenes in Parshat Miketz, including some that Marshall read, that through verbal cues indicate to us that the Torah is concerned with and interested in the relationship between being known and being a stranger, being seen and being obscured. And it has to do with the specific things that we know and note about another person, who they are, what they look like, and what they stand for. The verbal game has to do with roots, and you know that I love Hebrew roots, that are not etymologically connected. I want to make that clear. Sometimes I play with roots that are etymologically connected, but are alliteratively, alliteratively, they are, they, there's alliteration there. I don't know how to put that into an adverb, connected. Right? So most Hebrew roots, sometimes you can make uh, associations between the first two letters of similar three-letter roots. Sometimes it's two letters of a root, but it's the, it's the last two letters of the root that are being played with, not the first two. That's the situation that we're in here, and therefore I don't think they're etymologically sourced, but I think that the Torah is composed in such a way for us to pay attention to them. And the roots that we're talking about are lehakir, to know, and lehit naker, to become a stranger. The root of lehit naker is nun kafresh nochri, someone who's foreign, who is either not seen or seen only in um, very convenient ways by the person who wants to see them and keep their foreignness. And lehit naker is to make yourself strange, to allow yourself not to be seen. And lahakir is to notice specifically what someone is and what something is. This relationship, this dance between those two verbs begins in last week's Parsha. Actually, it begins earlier, but we're only going to, because this is a half an hour-ish teaching, not an hour-long teaching, we're going to uh, be, um, we're going to cull from the many verses we could have looked at. Look briefly at chapter 37 of Breshit, verse 32. Page 232 in the Eitz Chaim. Going back to Parshat Vayeshev. This incredibly emotional scene that a country music composer could have written a beautiful song about. <laughs> when the brothers bring the evidence to Yaakov 
that Joseph is gone. Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote about it. Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote it, and it makes me cry. <laughs> they sent the striped garment that had been was a love gift from Jacob to Joseph. They brought it to their father. They said, Dad, we found this. Do you recognize it? Oh my God, what a painful question. Do you know whose this is? Do you see the detail in it? This is not just any coat. Do you know what happened, Dad? A terribly painful rhetorical question. Is this your son? We're your sons too. Is this your son's garment or is it not? Of course it is. Do you see? Do you recognize? Look a few verses later, chapter 37, verse 33. Actually, not the few, the next verse. Vayakira, he knew it. Can you imagine Yaakov's emotions in that moment? This is not just any garment. He recognized it. He saw it for exactly what it was. And therefore, there's a full awareness of the horror he's about to experience. Vayomer kutonet b'ni. Yeah, it is my son's garment. Chaya ra'a It must be that a wild beast devoured him. Tarof toraf Yosef. He gets to this emotional broken place through hakara, through recognition, through seeing, through specificity. This root is carried over even into the interlude in Parshat Vayesha last week, the interlude between Judah, Yehuda, and Tamar, which deserves its own attention, which we're not giving it. But that those series of moments where Judah is made to see how wrong he is for having withheld a third son from Tamar, and how wrong he was for treating her the way he did. Chapter 38 of Breshit, verse 25, on page 236 in the Eitz Chaim at the bottom. Judah said, find that Tamar who is clearly pregnant through harlotry and bring her out. She was found. And she sent to her father-in-law, Lamor, saying this, to whatever man that these things belong to. What are these things? These are the things that she took as collateral when Judah, thinking of her as a prostitute, slept with her. I'm pregnant with that person's things. And she said, oh, this would be a great scene for a good movie producer or songwriter to create, to create something out of. Do you know? Do you recognize? Do you see who these things belong to? Do you know really who these things are, belong, are connected to? Do you see? And in chapter 38, verse 26, the next verse, Vayaker Yehuda, he couldn't not see them for exactly what, what they are. They belong to him. Vayomer tzadkamimeni. And he said, you are more righteous than me. So it's his shame and his recognition that comes out through this specific understanding of who these things belong to. They were his. And it's Jacob's torn heart that emerges from recognizing haker, the specific garment that was brought to him that was torn. That's the stuff from Vayeshev. Now we're in Miketz. Turn to chapter 42, verse 7. Page 259. Joseph is second in command. He is providing food for all of Egypt. 
we, we readers, there's a word for this in literary analysis. We have knowledge that the characters do not, right? We know that the brothers don't know that Joseph is Joseph. We know that Joseph knows that he's Joseph. And we know that Joseph knows that they don't know, right? And we're kind of watching this from above. We know that Joseph is the one that they're going to be asking this question to. They came, the brothers of Joseph, they bowed down upon their faces to the ground in that moment, already reifying his prophecy that that's what would happen. Joseph saw his brothers. There's our verb. He saw them. He knew exactly who they were. The years had not obscured. He saw the details for who they were. You might even say that and he saw into their hearts as to what kind of brothers they were. And now look at their next word. Those are the two roots that are not etymologically connected, but I think are thematically connected. He saw them, he knew them for who they were, and he allowed himself not to be seen and be known. I want to say that again. He knew exactly who they were, and his response was, you may not know me, not care. He turned himself into a stranger to them. By the very time Kashod, he spoke to them harshly. And he said, where'd you come from? You know, I suspect you are spies. Look at the next verse, chapter, sorry, not the next verse. Look at chapter, yeah, the next verse, verse, verse eight. Vayaker Yosef et Achav, that Joseph knew his brothers. Vehem lo hikiruhu. They did not know him hikiruhu because he had made himself into a nochri, a stranger. So there is such a, um, a tension in the scene between who knows what, who knows whom, who is seen and who is not seen. Joseph has the power of vision, always had his entire life, and sees them for exactly who they are. And they are rendered blind and see him as a stranger because that's how he's choosing to dress himself up as. And it's a very powerful thing to make yourself a nochri, a stranger in someone else's eyes. It's a very powerless thing by comparison. When you're a stranger in someone else's eyes, not because you want to be, but because they make you that way. Rabbi Schatz? So before I turn, I go into this deeply, I would love to know if there's anybody who has any thoughts as to why this is a problem. Why is it a problem that Joseph, or why is it interesting? It might not be a problem. Why is it interesting that Joseph knows who his brothers are, but he, he Joseph, does everything he can to make sure that they do not know who he is and they don't recognize him. What, what is it about this particular instance that's interesting or could be, could be an issue to you? I'll go into why I think so, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Yeah, Jeffrey Altman. I don't know if you can unmute yourselves or if Kenji has to, but I'll say your full name so that he knows who you are. Can you unmute? There you go. So perhaps the brothers don't know Joseph because when, when they were younger and they, they threw him in the pit, they actually treated him like a stranger. Yeah. They treated him as if he were not family. And he's hiding himself from them to see if there's anything about them that's changed, whether they have any true character and true honesty at this point. 
Great. Great. I, the, I thought you were going in a different direction and I'm so glad, I'm so glad that you went in the direction you went in because there's something ex- there's something very interesting about the fact that the brothers never really even wanted to know him, right? They threw him in a pit. They never really knew him. And so the fact that he was made a stranger to them once, he is now a stranger to them and making himself into a stranger to do exactly what you just mentioned, to allow them the possibility to have grown, to show, no, in fact, you're not a stranger to us. We've grown. We're going to allow you into our... I would say family, but really hearts, right? We'll, we'll allow you in. And that can only be done if they've changed because as you poignantly mentioned, he was a stranger to them always. He was never known to them. Joanna, do you have a thought? I see your virtual hand. So um, sort of building a little bit on what's been said, when you think about how a relationship grows, whether we're talking a brand new relationship that never existed or repairing a severed relationship, you get more specific and you know more and more when the trust develops over time. So at this moment in time, Joseph doesn't yet trust the relationship. He needs to do some more things to see if he feels safe with them, especially in this case, when we're talking about a relationship that has been severed badly, that trust and that sense of safety has to build before Joseph is really willing to get into the specificity about um, details that will um, lead to a relationship that is a real relationship built around Lehakira on knowing each other. Beautiful. There's a sense of trust that needs to be there for him to feel like he wants to be known or that he can be known. And going back to the verses that Rabbi Klickfeld um, read for us, that that moment with with Tamar, she is showing that that moment of either lack of trust or that she knew what was going on, but he didn't know what was going on, right? There was no, there was no moment there of actual knowing because they didn't have a relationship. They didn't actually know one another. There was no way for someone to recognize another if there is not that trust and that honesty that is built in the relationship to get to know the other person. Any other, any other thoughts? Yes, Gabriela Litov. Hold on one second, Gabriella. We're just going to unmute you before you start talking. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, he really, Joseph really suffered a great yeah. deal. And uh, before, and, and really it was by a miracle that he became the, vizier, the high vizier of, of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you would have bet that he would have been killed or made a slave or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, but um, uh, so I think, you know, part of it is J- Joseph is human and he would like the brothers, he, he would like them to suffer because remember, there mm. was a play in Egypt. Mm-hmm. So he wanted them to, to really suffer and to really mm. have to go back to their father and, and convince him and, 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 and he accused him of being spies and, and yeah. accused them shabbily i mean uh they they deserved it i think part of us knows that you know vengeance uh sometimes tastes sweet or even sweeter when it's cold (laughs) 
Sure. It seems as though Joseph was doing this very knowingly, right? Not to use that word too much here, but he he knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to get them to feel the pain, probably not the same amount of pain that he felt when they betrayed him, but to feel as though they really had to work for that, which they wanted, which in this case was, was not relationship, but then ended up being that they needed relationship to get what they wanted. But they, he was doing, and the rabbis agreed agree with you. He, he knew that he was making himself unknown to them so that he could get what he wanted in terms of how they would feel and how they would have to work for that, which they wanted. So you're picking up on, on what the rabbis are putting down. Thanks, Gabriella. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Rebecca. There you go. <laughs> um, I think it's, I think what's interesting here is that he doesn't accuse them of um, being thieves or any other uh, crime, but rather mm. spying, which again mm-hmm. goes back to the knowing and unknowing. And instead of it being a positive mm. thing that they're coming wow, to know him in a good way, they're sort of bringing out the ugly part of getting to know someone when you're not supposed to. So I thought it was interesting that that plays into those two words as well. Yeah. Beautiful, Rebecca. What a beautiful insight. Yeah, I love that. I had not thought about that. And I, I, I really love that. That is a powerful way of thinking about how we also use the ability to get to know something or see something, right? That it can be used for bad or it can be used for good. Um, and the Torah, you know, the, the Torah uses language very carefully. And the fact that, as you're pointing out, they don't use a different term for what Joseph thought they could be that would be denigrating to them. He uses a way in which seeing something or knowing or recognizing something could be used for evil or could be used um, against against something else. It's even more Very interesting powerful. if I can interject in the yeah. Hebrew because the Hebrew word for spy in the Torah is a miragel. Right. right? Miragel is from regel, the, a leg. So to be a miragel is to take yourself somewhere in an exploitative way. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, to, it's to go somewhere to a, to a place or to a person and, ex, and, and exploit what you see rather than to see the person or the thing for what it actually is, right? And the um, and, and that, of course, gets a lot of play later on in the Torah when the Miraglim go into the land of Israel and some of them see the land for what it actually is, mm-hmm. at least the way the Torah tells the story, and 10 see it just the way they want to see it. Beautiful, beautiful, Rebecca. Yeah. Barbara's hand is up. Yes, Barbara, you're going to be our last one so that we can move on. But first, I know what you're eating, Barbara, because I'm hungry. No, you have to unmute yourself. Barbara, 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 un- <laughs> unmute yourself. You didn't. You're muted. <laughs> there was a second of unmute. <laughs> yes, somebody hey. then muted me. I'm eating right. pumpkin seeds. Delicious. The <laughs> okay. bracha is bore priha adama. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. I just found them in the cabinet. We bought them a long time ago, and they're so good. Great. Um, I, I think it's not surprising that, that the brothers didn't recognize Joseph. Uh-huh. Because they thought he was dead. And... And then they come upon this very important man wearing Egyptian robes, mm-hmm. looking like an Egyptian because of the way he's in where he's living and where where, where he's way he is clothed, yeah. clothed. And so it's not surprising that they didn't recognize him. I think that was an important thing that they couldn't recognize him. They could have just thought, "Oh, he looked like my brother," but hell, there's no way he was my brother, so they wouldn't even suspect it. 
Great. So you're picking up on a really important part and, and it will jump into what um, I'm going to share in a moment that the, the important piece of them not recognizing him was that they couldn't imagine that it could be him. Right. Even if he looked the same, the rabbis, I was mentioning this to Rabbi Klickfeld yesterday, the rabbis have a very good time talking about how he didn't have a beard when they saw him last. And now he has a beard. And so the brothers didn't recognize him. That didn't feel so compelling to me. So I didn't focus on that. But the idea here that they couldn't have imagined whether or not, as you said, whether or not he had similar features, they couldn't have imagined the position that he was now in. They couldn't have imagined that their brother, who they threw into a pit, whether or not they thought he was dead, that he was put to such a low place physically that he could be now brought up to such a high place and in a position to help them. That to them is just completely crazy. How could that be their brother? They would have never even thought to imagine that. So I'm going to bring a few commentaries before I pass it back over to Rabbi Kligfeld. The thing that is most interesting to me about this verse that some of you have touched on is this idea that it's important for us to know that they didn't recognize him. Right? Why would the Torah mention it if it wasn't important? And, and why is it important? Why do we need to know as the readers of this story that Joseph knew them, but they did not recognize him? And to go one step further, that he made himself unrecognizable in all the ways that he treated them and he, and he dealt with them in front of him. So Ibn Ezra has a beautiful commentary on this for which he says he knew immediately, Joseph knew immediately that they were his brothers, right? Right off the bat, they stood in front of him. He knew those are my brothers, but only after he examined them more carefully, did he know who was who he needed to spend time getting to not just look them over and say, oh, right, my brother, Levy had a freckle on his right cheek, but he needed to actually remember who they were. He spent a lot of time away from them. And so sure, he saw them and knew those are my brothers, but he didn't actually know them. He didn't actually know who they were until he really spent time with them. And then one more piece here from the Orachaim says, when Joseph saw them, he felt as their brother and displayed friendliness towards them. It was only from the brother's side that he appeared as a stranger. And this gets back to Rabbi Klickfeld's uh, introduction with the the, um, country songs, for which my dad loves country music, so I know it very well. (laughs) Um, That there's feeling there. He felt as though they were his brother's. He didn't necessarily, at least according to the Orachaim, he's not saying, oh, they look the same, but he feels a sense of camaraderie. He feels like they are family. He feels something for these people that he needs to now take care of. So in that way, he is recognizing them because he feels something for them that he hasn't felt for anybody else except for them. And the brothers, why do they not know who he is? Because they don't feel anything towards him. They don't see him as their brother, as Joseph, as this sibling. Even if they felt jealousy, that would be a feeling. But they don't feel anything towards him. So maybe it's that knowing 
is having that trust, having that honesty, having those feelings, no one's knowing someone well enough that you don't just see them and say, I remember your name because I recognize your face, but that you actually know them. You actually know how you feel when you are around them and how you feel when you can feel with them, right? When they, when you can know what they are also feeling, maybe that's what this recognition is a higher recognition than just you look similar, but actually being able to feel for this person or these people a way in which you haven't for others. When Rabbi Schatz and I were discussing this theme and trying to figure out where, where to take it, because there's so many applications, um, we decided to go in, in addition to the many interesting things that you all have brought up, we had another hashlacha, another ramification that we wanted to take it to. And, and, and this is where we're going to go in that direction now. It has to do with the fact that I, we make choices, like Yosef made a choice. We make choices that govern the extent to which the people in our presence feel seen or, are, or, or, are, or feel a stranger in our presence. It doesn't just happen by itself. Um, and this notion of being seen and being a stranger as being opposites that are very, very close together is interesting as well. One of my friends and teachers, Rabbi Jack Moline, says that in Jewish thought, the way we should think of opposites are not as two points on the opposite end of a straight line, but many Jewish opposites, like Tameh and Tahor, those categories of clean and unclean, which I, it's a terrible, pure, impure, terrible English translation of those phrases. They are the opposite ends of a certain spectrum, but Rabbi uh, Moline says the way you should think of them is as if that line were curved around, and so the opposites are almost touching each other to let you know that, right, like just has laughter and crying are the opposite emotional reactions, and yet we know that they're very, very keyed in together. So to know and to not know are the opposites, and in this scene, they're being brought very close together. To be, to have someone feel they are really uh, understood in your presence and to have someone feel that they are a stranger in your presence, it's the, there couldn't be two different ways of treating someone, and yet the difference between them could be very subtle. Where our minds went to this was um, some of the, the, the headlines that we have seen over the last week and a half that emerged from what I consider to be a despicable, a despicable editorial that the Wall Street Journal um, printed that questioned whether or not Dr. Jill Biden should be permitted to continue to call herself doctor because her doctorate was only in educational psychology or something like that and not in medicine. And that if you need someone to give you the Heimlich maneuver uh, in the White House, don't rely on Dr. Biden to do it. There were there have been many, many reactions to that editorial, which again, I, 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 I very much believe in uh, an editorial committee deciding that even things that are objectionable should be read, right? That, that, that I, I, that, that's the way ideas are brought out and treated as they're supposed to be treated. So we, only, we don't only print things that we agree with. Um, that would just be echo chamberism. But I, some things don't rise to the level of deserving this amount of attention. I believe this editorial, my personal opinion, is in that category. But it actually has created a wonderful conversation that has to do with, first of all, the gendered way in which this often, not entirely, but often emerges, right? How women in... Um, and our society and women in certain categories of educational achievement have to fight for their titles 
in a way that men do not have to, um, and how easy it is, sadly, how easy it is, with your choice of how you address someone, to either make them feel totally seen, totally beheld, totally um, uh, recognized by you, or be turned into an utter stranger. And we talked about that in our own life as rabbis, right? And again, some of this is gendered and some of this is not. Um, I'm just going to name it. Uh, for, for reasons that I think um, emerge both from good intention and also from some part of this broken part of our society, Rabbi Rebecca Schatz, who loves her name Rebecca and also <laughs> loves that she earned the title rabbi, is most often referred to as Rebecca in our communal setting when most people would not refer to me as Adam, even though I like my name, right? Some of that is, is indeed gendered, and we're still in the first two generations of women becoming rabbis in the conservative movement, and uh, we notice it. I don't think people have, have um, like nefarious intentions when it happens, but there's a way in which we choose to call someone by what we want to call them rather than what they have chosen to be uh, called themselves. And that instantaneously turns that person in our presence into a stranger. Right? I'm not wagging fingers at anybody on this screen or who's, who's watching. I want us to raise our awareness of what is held in our hands when we're in someone's presence and we're choosing to call them by what we want to call them rather than what they want to be called themselves, right? Is there anything more elemental than owning your name? Particularly if you've earned a title, is there anything more elemental than being addressed by how you know yourself rather than being addressed by how you want to know me, right? Um, there's this wonderful phrase, uh, we think we, th we think we see things as they are. We actually see things as we are. We think we're just objective and we see situations and people as they actually are. They are almost always filtered through something that is present and real for us at the moment. And we see things as we are. So anyone who is calling, who refuses to refer to Dr. Jill Biden as Dr. Biden it's saying so much more about who they are than who she is. But her experience of that, either in a public or a private setting, is that rather than her being allowed to be seen, she's being rendered a stranger. Um, not all of this is gendered. I think some of you know this, that um, I was a rabbi in uh, upstate New York for nine years before coming to Los Angeles, and some of this is cultural and transcends gender. And again, I love my first name, and I need people in my life to call me by my first name. And I also think that the rabbinic title matters. It, there, there's, there's a reason why most people don't go into their doctor's offices and say, hi, Jim, right? There's a reason why that professional separation allows for a trust to be built and allows for the proper amount of authority to be present in those relationships. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. In nine years, no one in my congregation, even once, would ever have called me Adam, uh, certainly in a congregational setting. If we happen to also have developed a friendship outside of the congregation, we were on a hike, they were not going to be calling me Rabbi Kligfeld. But there was never a circumstance into which uh, a member of that community would refer to me in writing or in person as anything but Rabbi Kligfeld, which, by the way, is how I had asked for, right? There was, it was an honoring of the title that I thought made sense in my professional work. Los Angeles is different than New York. That's not a bad thing. It's just a thing, right? And so I'm now here 12 years, and there's still members of our community. And 
I'm not offended by this. It doesn't hurt me, but it's an interesting thing to recognize who, even though it's very clear that I signed my emails, Rabbi Klickfeld or RAK, and I'm known in the community as Rabbi Klickfeld, who in rabbinic settings, not in personal settings, will use my first name. Again, I love my first name, but it's just an interesting thing to recognize how we use our ability to let someone know how we see them and how we're choosing not to see them without necessarily, or maybe specifically thinking about how they're going to react in that moment. So there have been moments in my congregational life here at Temple Beth Am, and I've gotten over it and I'm fine, right? This is not a gripe session. This is a conversation about um, how this, par- this, uh, this dynamic works in relationship where instead of feeling at home and being seen for who I want to be, I'm rendered a stranger in that moment because someone else wants to call me by X when I'd rather be known as Y. There are places in this dynamic that are uh, um, gendered in an ugly and painful way, and our society has to get past that. And there are parts of it that go beyond gender and relate to a person's willingness to not make another person feel like a nochri, like a stranger in their presence, but rather actually lehakirotam, to see them. When someone has earned a title by their training and by their education, they, and only they, I believe, determine when they are and when they are not addressed by that title. And when someone has earned... uh, uh, lived out their name, right? They've really, they've really made a name for themselves. I think it's incumbent upon other people to recognize that by using the very name that they want to be known by. And that's how we allow people to be seen and not force them to be strangers in our midst. And that's a mitzvah. That's a beautiful kind act because we see in our scene how much, how much imbalance there is when People are not recognized for who they actually are and when they are made to feel as strangers. Rabbi Schatz? Just before we close, as you were, as you were talking, I, it's very interesting to think about how we get our names. Um, when I work with conversion students, I often explain to them that unlike your English name, which my parents' names are Dale and Tracy, but I don't go around and say, hi, my name is Rebecca, the daughter of Dale and Tracy. But when I'm called to the Torah, my name includes their names. And so when I'm working with conversion students to pick a name, I explain to them that in Jewish tradition, your name is not just your name, but it's a name that lives on in any children or any family that you choose to have. And they are also then known by your name. And similarly, when you go through a get ceremony, on the get, it is not just your name, but it is the name in which your partner called you as well. So nicknames or pet names or anything like that that you might go by so that on the get, it is clear who it is because there might be many Rebecca Schatzes but if, I, if my name, Rebecca Schatz, is on a get, and it has all the other names that I might be called by the, the person who I'm in partnership with, then it's very clear that it's me and not some other Rebecca Schatz. And I think that this, this comes back to emotion and comes back to feeling, not feeling like a stranger, feeling like you've earned a title, like Dr. Debbie Mishik, who I did not call doctor when she read her Haftorah. 
and making sure that people feel seen because that feeling is extremely important. Making sure that when someone is called by the name that they wish to be called, that you know that you're making them feel like what they're what they're with you in that experience to do is being seen as, as held up in a certain way. And on the flip side, when my father calls me Rabbi Schatz in front of a bunch of ECC students, it's very cute for him. And it's weird because my dad calls me other things. And that feeling of having your father call you something that is honorific and I'm proud of is not to me as, as sweet or as, um, as intimate as when he calls me the things that he's been calling me since I was a child. So though Joseph is not talking specifically about names in this story, I do think it has to do with what we, what we hear from the Orachim, which is that feeling, that feeling of belonging to these people who have come before him, but them yet, not yet realizing that he belongs back to them. And that feeling of recognizing that he can see them. He knows who they are because he feels for them as siblings and that they can't yet recognize him because they haven't allowed themselves to open up to what that relationship is. So we wish you all a Shabbat Shalom and we always attempt to see you as you want to be seen. (laughs) And if we don't, you should let us know. And we always appreciate and really take to heart when you see us uh, as we, as we really are. And uh, that allows us to be in even more of an intimate relationship with you as we share this planet together. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.